Well, we have much to celebrate and rejoice in this morning, um, but nothing even close um, to the fact that we have a God uh, who came from heaven to rescue us, to die on the cross for our sins. What, what an amazing, amazing thing uh, to proclaim in song this morning. Thank you, Josh, uh, for leading us. Thank you for uh, serving us for the last two years. Uh, it has been a great uh, a great season, and uh, we look forward to more years to come. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I hope you were blessed with Pastor Trevor here last week. Um, we were away camping out at Buffalo Lake for a few days, and then uh, at Camp Evergreen, uh, their family camp, just having a great time. Uh, I found out the trick to going to family camp on the cheap uh, is to take some old sermons with you and uh, preach them while you're there. So what you guys heard over seven hours, um, they got uh, the tabernacle in four 20-minute um, fire hose downloads, um, but it was fun. At least for me, I don't know. Um, and I got to use my tape measure, Shane. I got to measure everything out in cubits with my cubit tape measure. Uh, it was fantastic. Um, but uh, so good to be back. Glad to be here. It was killing me last week to know that you guys were getting the announcement of the move, and I was away, but I was praying for you and excited about it. And uh, today's going to be a great day, just as we head over there after service, pray together for a little while. Um, But this morning, uh, back into Habakkuk. We've been working uh, through Habakkuk verse by verse, so go ahead and turn there with me in your Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible on you, um, I just encourage you to pull out that uh, trusty cell phone and uh, go to esv.org. I was listening to one preacher say uh, he was a second generation. My father used to love to see, he loved the sound of flipping pages. And he said, my pleasure is to see the warm glow of God's word on people's faces. Um, So don't be ashamed. You've got to pull out your phone. Nobody will think you're texting. Unless you're texting, then be ashamed. Ah. Um, Habakkuk, fun little one to find. End of the Old Testament. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Uh, If you get into Zechariah, Zephaniah, Mark, Luke, you've gone too far. Back up. Um, I hope you've got those those fill-in sheets. Kids, you fill that out. I do. Uh, I did remember chocolate bars. I was going to say as always, but that's only mostly the case. So, um, yeah, meet me afterwards. Um, We've got to be quick because we've got to catch it on our way out. Um, but I'll have chocolate for if you fill that in. And uh, if you remember from two weeks ago, grown-ups, um, no shame. We're forgetting now that those are no longer the kids' fill-ins. Those are for everybody. Um, so feel free to use that. Um, reading this passage over this last week, and it just struck me looking through uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 to 20, um, how much as a culture, as society, I think as humanity, um, we love this idea of karma. What goes around comes around. You'll get what's coming to you. If you, if you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you'll get bad. And, and that, um, that shows up all over the place. People get what they deserve in the movies and, and these different things. And um, Now, karma proper is, is actually a, a serious um, part of, a, of Hinduism and Buddhism. It's, a, it's actually technically a part of a false religion. So as believers, um, we don't actually take karma seriously, not as they do. Um, I think we throw that word around in jest sometimes. Um, and yet there's something in us um, that, that is drawn to that idea, and it's something right in us. It's the image of God in us that says, um, justice is right. People ought to get what they deserve. And, and, and that's very much what we see here in Habakkuk 2. Um, 
but it's not some vague universal force. It's not some just kind of cyclical, you know, what you put out into the universe happens to come back to you. Uh, no, it's God. It is a personal God responding in justice against wicked. And uh, it's been a little while, so let me kind of bring us all up to speed together. Um, if you remember the beginning of Habakkuk, the nation of Israel was rebelling against God, uh, had turned their backs on him and run after idols. There was corruption and wickedness. Uh, evil wasn't just happening. It was being celebrated and put on a pedestal. Sound familiar? Um, and uh, the, the, the government had become corrupt and twisted in the legal systems. And so there was, there was bribery and self-serving judges and nobody got justice. Uh, it was ugly. It was messy. And so Habakkuk is crying out to God in desperation. Lord, why do you let this continue? How does this continue without you acting, without you acting in justice here? And the Lord answered Habakkuk, but not in a way that made him feel any better. Um, God responds saying, oh, I will act. Uh, I'm going to bring the even more wicked, even more idolatrous, even more detestable Babylonians, and they're going to come in as my tool of judgment against Israel. And, uh, and so Habakkuk wrestles with God uh, in a way that I think we all wrestle to some extent. God, how can this be? How can you use wickedness and evil as your plan? How can you be sovereign over even these, these wicked Babylonians and still be good? Um, how does this work, Lord? How can you be over the painful and evil things in my life? Um, and Habakkuk presses the Lord hard on that. He pushes in on God, uh, and then he steps back and says, God, I'll wait. I'll wait for your answer. I'm not going to try and come up with it with my own philosophies and understanding. Um, I will wait for your answer. And, and the Lord did answer him. God um, speaks to Habakkuk and he gives him this vision um, that answers his question. And, and it's summarized in, in chapter 2, verse 4. It's probably the key verse in the whole book of Habakkuk. Um, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Trust me, Habakkuk. Trust me, wait, wait with patient humility, wait with persistent obedience, wait with this peculiar faith centered on Jesus Christ and the hope that is in him. And, and, and that's where we left Habakkuk two weeks ago, waiting, waiting for the Lord, trusting in his goodness in spite of his experience, in spite of all the evil and ugliness he saw in the world, trusting that God is good, trusting that God was working through it. Uh, and this week we come to uh, the second part of God's answer. Um, but I think the order is significant. We have to first come to grips with part one of that answer. We have to begin uh, trusting the Lord in faith, turning to him. Um, no matter what comes, no matter what's going on in our world, waiting on him in faith. Um, but the second part of the answer follows. Um, the Lord reveals to Habakkuk uh, the fate of the wicked and the future of worship. Kids, you with me? The fate of the wicked and the future of worship. That, that even though he asks his children to, to wait patiently on him through suffering, and even though his, he's sovereign over all the wickedness that was going on um, and using it for his good pleasure, um, there will still be justice in the end. There would still be justice. The wicked will be punished. And, and all things will one day be set Right, God is not overlooking this, not in any way. Um, and so uh, let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we will um, start to kind of work through this text. Join me in prayer. Father, 
I thank you um, being reminded again this morning that you know my frame and you know that I am dust. There is no pretense here. Um, God, none of us hides anything before you. Um, and so, God, I just humbly ask that you, would, that you would breathe your spirit into this dust this morning and that you would speak uh, through your word. Use me as your tool. Uh, if you can use the Babylonians, God, I trust you could use me. Um, and, Lord, we, just, we come to you with open hearts. Um, God, convict us this morning if we need it. Uh, encourage us. Strengthen us. Um, Lord, help us to see your truth clearly uh, and to be uh, enamored again by your glory and the beauty of who you are. God, that we might worship you, um, that we might grow this morning as we look at your word. Father, would you be faithful? Um, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So coming into the second part of the answer, uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 6. And uh, the first most obvious thing we see in these verses uh, is the woes of the wicked. The woes of the wicked. Um, if you scan down this page, um, you'll, you'll notice this recurring phrase. Uh, verse 6, woe to him. Verse 9, woe to him. Verse 12, uh, verse 15, verse 19. Um, there's five statements of woe to him, woe to him. Um, kids, how many of you use the word woe this week? Not riding a horse. <laughs> woe to you, brother. Right? I don't think so. Uh, it's not a word we use very often. Um, this, this, this word woe is, is a really interesting word, and, and it's specifically interesting in the prophets. The prophets use this word a lot. Um, Jesus picks up on it in some of his kind of prophetic declarations. Um, it's an odd statement. Woe was a statement of sorrow, of grief, of mourning. It's connected with funerals and weeping. Um, maybe similar to our word condolences, but, but much stronger. Um, Isaiah, if you remember, found himself in the presence of the Lord, and he's legitimately terrified that he's about to be evaporated, undone, destroyed in the presence of God, and he cries out, Woe is me. Um, pity me. Feel bad for me. I'm about to be destroyed. And so it's this call to, to pity, to, to empathy, um, implying something horrible has happened or will happen. Uh, and yet as we see it in the prophets, it's almost used ironically. It's, it's this statement of judgment. Oh, oh, you'll want people to be sorry for you. Oh, people are going to pity you. And, and so that's what's happening here. Um, I think we see that fairly clearly at the beginning of verse 6. Um, shall not all these, all these, these people, the nations that Babylon has trampled over, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him. So the, the people are going to stand up and use this in mocking of Babylon, uh, who has brought so much pain on them. They're going to return with this, this statement of woe. Uh, God is saying, I will punish the wicked. I will punish the wicked. Uh, and so these are five curses. Um, they're going to come on to Babylon for their evil. Now, before we dive into that, I just want to pause. I think that's kind of an interesting moment um, to, to recognize maybe the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility is a little more complex than we often make it out to be. Um, 
we, we often have this idea as kind of a black and white, um, either God is sovereign and we are robots or we are free and God is kind of left um, responding to us, not sure where things are going, um, not sovereign. Um, and, and I just don't think it works that way. I think we see here um, that, that we, have, we have will, we make decisions, our decisions matter, um, but God is sovereign. And so God says, as we work through chapter one, that he's over this. He's over every detail of even the wicked Babylonians. He's bringing this about. And then at the same time, they're held accountable. They are judged for their part in carrying out God's sovereign plan. And so in one and the same act, um, God is good and glorious as he brings about righteous judgment and the Babylonians are condemnable and wicked for their part in it. And so I agree we have a paradox here. Um, The proper definition of paradox is something that looks like a contradiction, but as you examine it further, it's not. Um, They seem to contradict and trying to feather out exactly how God's sovereignty and man's will uh, interact with one another is beyond us, but they're both there. Uh, And I think they're both taught throughout Scripture, and so we hold on to those two uh, as we kind of wrestle out the details as best we can. Um, But God is certainly sovereign over the Babylonians and now calling them to account uh, for their their evil. Uh, And so here are these five curses from the Lord. Um, There are uh, the first two are, are kind of specific to um, human to human, how Babylon treated other people. The middle one is kind of an overlap. It's, it's the gray area between the two. And then the, the second, the final two, um, four and five, uh, are about their heart, their attitude toward the Lord. So you'll see that kind of play out as we work through them. Uh, first, um, the end of verse six through verse eight, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Let me, let me read that for us again, starting kind of the middle of verse 6 there. Um, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Uh, and so Babylon has conquered and plundered many nations. And God kind of characterizes that as, uh, as this borrowing lending scheme. Um, it's a little bit confusing because it seems like Babylon is on both sides. Um, they've heaped up things that are not their own. Um, they have borrowed or stolen much. Um, but they also are loading themselves up with pledges. Now, a pledge was something that uh, I'll lend you $500, but to guarantee that you'll pay it back, um, I'm going to keep your necklace, your necklace that you love that's precious to you. And when you pay me back my $500, I'll give you back your necklace. And it seems what was happening uh, is Babylon is uh, getting paid back and not returning the pledge. They're not dealing fairly. They're being unjust and taking uh, what is not rightfully theirs, and, and they're piling up. Um, th- borrowing, stealing what is not their own, and, and keeping and, and uh, loading up on pledges. And, and so Babylon is unjust. They're, they're wicked in the way that they're dealing with other people. And, and you see this kind of what goes around comes around. You have plundered them. They will plunder you. You will be plundered. 
Um, the, you have bankrupted them. They will bankrupt you. And, and, uh, and so God lays this woe out. It is not going to end well. You will get what you deserve. Um, the second woe then is verses 9 to 11. And uh, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. For his, he sets his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Uh, again, so that's verses 9 to 11. Let me read this for us. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, who sets his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Uh, and so uh, first they had kind of built up their wealth with dishonesty. Now they're building up their security. Uh, but they're building up their security on the insecurity of others at the cost to others. Um, and so that's the idea of this nest on high. They've, they've built their house far away from trouble where they can't be touched. Um, but verse 10 shows um, that he gets there by, by cutting off people, by taking advantage of others, by, um, by wicked means. Um, this is the, the employer, you could, you could see this played out, who, who is so miserly and stingy toward his employees and he's making money hand over fist and, and built this massive house and laid away wealth for years to come and his employees are working long, hard hours and, and can barely make it through the month. This, this is like the, the, the Scrooge kind of a, uh, from the Christmas Carol that we see. Um, he, he's building up his security at the cost of others. Uh, verse 11 um, says the stones in the wall and the beams in the woodwork will cry out against you. He's, he's used human beings as if they were building materials in his fortress and he's, and he's trampled over them, but those stones and beams that you've counted as little, they will be witnesses against you in court. They will stand up uh, and speak. Uh, and so uh, it, it will come to shame and death. The third woe, um, verses 12 to 14, um, this is kind of that overlap one, and, and you'll see that in a few minutes. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city upon iniquity. Um, so verse, uh, verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from, sorry, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um, building a city um, was, was a thing of honor. Right Today we have CEOs and entrepreneurs who, who build a grand company and they kind of sit on top of the company. It's theirs and, and everyone kind of knows they're the head of the company. That's like the pinnacle of honor in our business world. For them, it was a city. Uh, you were a great man. You built a town. You built a city. Um, and, and so uh, they, they've, they've gone after wealth and then security and now their own glory, their own honor. And, uh, and they did it with blood and iniquity or evil. Um, blood, I think, could be a reference, obviously, to them just killing people. They were, they were a, a war machine, and they slaughtered other nations, but I think there's also a reference there to slavery. It's built on the backs of others. They are taking advantage of people and, and, and building their honor um, by the sweat and blood of others. Um, and the Lord says it won't last. Um, they, they built their honor and their glory by any means necessary, and, and, and it's from the Lord um, that it will be for fire. It, it's going to be burned up. It's going to come to nothing. It will be devoured. Um, 
Why? And this is kind of that, that overlap moment because the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They tried to elevate themselves. They tried to honor themselves. They wanted that place of prominence. And the Lord says, no, that's my place. You won't have it. Uh, it won't work. You cannot usurp my throne, my glory. Um, the earth will be filled with my glory. And, and your legacy of, of wicked and evil, it will be wiped out. It will be decimated. So woe number four then, uh, verses 15 to 17. Um, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. Um, let me read uh, 15 to 17 for us here. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter, sh- utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Uh, and so this one had me stumped a little bit as I first read it. Uh, I couldn't figure out how the wrath fits into this picture. Why is it that their neighbors are drinking the cup of their wrath and getting drunk, and, and what's the logic of that? Um, the NASB translation actually kind of tipped me off, uh, and, and the word there um, literally means heat, wrath, heat. You can see how those kind of go together, um, but it also could mean uh, poison or venom, which again, you can kind of see that correlation. Um, and so what he's saying, I think, is that Babylon um, was, was famous for their, their drunken parties and their debauchery. That was kind of part of who they were. And, and the Lord is using that as an example. Um, and what they were doing was not only engaging in their own sinful behavior, but they went beyond that, pouring that poison into a cup and passing it to their neighbor. Here, you try some. Why don't you join us? Come be a part of our debauchery and drunkenness. They're pulling other people into their sin and and enticing them um, to join them in their godless pursuits and bring uh, shame on them. It it uncovers their nakedness. It it brings them to shame. And I think we see this so often. Um, Those who have bought into the lies of the world, often, most notably, those who grew up in church or spent time in church and then buy into a worldly mindset and, and leave the church behind and walk into sin. Um, w- one of the ways that they try to convince themselves that they've done right, that this is good, this is the, the right decision, is to bring some other people along with them, right? Come and join me. No, come and see. You do it too. And, and if you're doing it and I'm doing it, then we know we're doing the right thing, right? And, and so you see these people trying to peddle this worldly mindedness, trying to convince themselves that this is right as they draw people into their sin. And God says, no, you passed them the cup of your poison and I will pass you my cup. And the reference there is certainly uh, the reference to wrath. I will pass you the wrath of God and and they will be forced to drink it. And and what they call glory, what they hoped in uh, for glory will be shown to be shameful, will be wiped out and, and destroyed, and, and, and violence and destruction will overwhelm them. Um, the, the same violence that they poured out on Lebanon uh, is going to be poured out on them. God will judge them for their sin. And then finally, the fifth woe. Um, woe to him 
who says to a wooden thing, awake. Um, This is verses 18 to 20. Let's read it together. Um, The prophet is an, sorry, what prophet is an idol? And when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It's those who worship idols. And we say, oh, good, that one we get a pass on. That's old stuff. That's ancient stuff. We don't worship idols. We don't do that anymore. Um, I would question that. I think we do. Uh, I think this does show up for us. Um, Verse 18, uh, his maker trusts in his own creation. There it is. There's idolatry. And I think that's very relevant for us today. People trusting in, worshiping, and serving the the works of their own hand. That that word uh, worship, I think if you think of it as devotion, I think that clears our thinking a little bit. Um, They're devoted to the works of their own hands instead of devoted to the Lord. Um, And I think in our culture that, that looks like an insatiable desire for material benefits, right? Bigger house, fuller closet, nicer toys, finer things. That's what I'm after. That's what I'm devoted to is the works of my own hands. Or maybe the drive for pride and, and ego. Spending countless hours poured into my, my work, into my career, my reputation building up, my knowledge and skill, accumulating my accomplishments. I'm, I am absolutely devoted to my reputation that people think well of me or running after the idol of self-seeking and, and physical pleasure, right? I am devoted to how I feel right now. I'm going to do what makes me feel best. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, television, um, whatever makes me happy now, I want it now. And, and I'm going to do what makes me happy in the moment. I think another one that shows up um, most notably um, within the church is, is devotion to my own morality, I will be the best Christian and people will know about my morality and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in, I, I do this and I do this and I'm in church every Sunday and I give to the church and, and, uh, and I don't swear and I don't go to those kinds of movies. Um, look how good I am. I'm devoted to my moral exterior and all of that um, is trusting, putting my devotion, my hope in something that I have made with my own hands. And those things lie. They, they are idols that lie to us. They promise fulfillment. They promise the, the honor that we seek. They promise to satisfy, and they never deliver. They never come through. We hope in them. Um, think of the, the, the gold-plated idol. It has this shiny exterior. It looks so good on the outside, but there's no breath in it, the Lord says. It has no life. There's nothing there behind that, and, uh, and it turns out, as, uh, as Isaiah puts it so clearly, um, that we will be found to have been worshiping firewood. Firewood, that's it. That's what it comes down to. And, and, and so just as the idol um, will, in the end, sit silent before its maker, pathetically so, um, so also the Lord says um, those who worship idols will end up sitting silent before their maker. And the Lord is in his holy temple. 
the one who rightly deserves our worship and our trust and our devotion. He's the one um, whom we ought to honor. And so the Bible calls us to justice, calls us to, to live justly. There's so much talk about justice today. Um, social justice and racial justice and the news is filled with talk of justice. So here it is. Um, here is God laying out this is what justice looks like according to me. He demands that we should not heap up wealth dishonestly. Um, we should not build our, our security and safety on the backs of others at the expense of others. Build up our, our fame and, and success by, um, by abusing and trampling over the weak. But biblical justice is, is not just how we live toward one another. It also includes how we live toward the Lord. Not walking in sin and drawing others into sin. And, and not uh, being devoted to and, and trusting in the, the works of our own hands, but worshiping and trusting the Lord. There's this strong divide today um, between those who would say, well, on, on one hand, typically on the, on the left, um, that it's all about community, it's all about us together, it's all about caring for one another and looking out for the weak and, and protecting and standing up for the voiceless and the downtrodden. And then on the other hand, there are those on the right who would say, no, it's all about personal responsibility. It's all about your choices and you're responsible for your choices and, and, uh, and you need to take care of yourself. And the biblical model encompasses both of those. Um, we are accountable for our decisions. We are responsible. Um, but it also requires us to care for others, to treat others with justice and, and equity and to care about the downtrodden and the weak. Uh, but it also calls us far beyond either of those um, to humbly and obediently live in right relationship to the Lord. That's significant. That, that's a step beyond what our worldly politics ever gets to. Um, Micah 6, 8, a familiar verse, makes this connection. He's told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly before your God. The only true justice is that which is rooted in our relationship to the Lord. That's where justice begins. Uh, I don't know if you saw this week um, the story of Jonathan Isaac. Um, I'm not an NBA follower whatsoever, um, but uh, this guy caught my eye. He, he plays for the Orlando Magic basketball team, and uh, he was the only man in two basketball teams uh, who stood through the national anthem and who wore his regular jersey rather than a Black Lives Matter t-shirt over top of it. And you can imagine that garnered him some attention. Uh, nobody asked him after the, uh, after the game about the missed three, free throw or the, uh, or the traveling call. Um, they asked him about that pre-service. What were you doing? Why did you do that? And, uh, and he answered very beautifully, Obviously, I believe black lives matter. There's no question himself being a black man. I, I don't think that's a question. Um, obviously, I care about and I'm, I'm absolutely opposed to police brutality. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but I don't believe that activism and, and political movements are the answer. The answer is Jesus. You got to say this on national television. I'm like, bring it on, buddy. Go for it. Let him have it. Uh, and he, he just wonderfully, profoundly said, the answer is Jesus. He's right. 
That, that we, we won't have justice until all of us recognize our own guilt before the Lord. And some of our guilt is a little more obvious in some than in others, but we are all guilty before God. And we come to him in repentance and we come to a loving, level playing field at the cross in humility before him. And, uh, and he nailed it. And that's the, so that's the first thing I think we need to see as we look at this list of woes. The, the first place is we kind of ask that question, so how do I respond? What do I do with this passage? The first thing we should do is to look for conviction in our own hearts. Am I among those whom the Lord uh, is calling out here? Am I among those whom God is warning? And we ought to take that very seriously. These are stark warnings. This is God is not playing games here. Justice will come for the wicked. Uh, is that me? And maybe you're thinking, well, uh, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not in any position of power or, or influence. Um, again, I beg to differ. Um, kids, right? They're the, the smallest, the, the most, uh, the lowly among us. But kids, how do you treat your brothers and sisters? Do you treat them as tools in your game? You play my game. You do my thing. I will use you and manipulate you for my joy. Parents toward children. Am I parenting my kids for their good and the glory of God? Or am I putting my success and my pride in my kids? Look at my kids. Look how well behaved they are and, and recognize me. Um, I expect them to obey me because I need power. I need that feeling of, of influence and importance. I want them to do the work so that I can sit on the couch, so that they can serve me. Um, it's significant. Certainly, bosses or, or senior employees, what about those who are under you in your job? How do you treat them? How do you work with them? Do you, do you treat them fairly? Even a customer, uh, as, as we go to a restaurant or to a store, how do you treat those who are serving you? Do, do you treat them with honesty and integrity, with mutual respect for mutual benefit? Um, do you tip well? Uh, this comes out in some real basic ways. So first, we ought to take this as a warning, as a moment for reflection on our own sin. Where do I fall in this? But it does have another function. Um, the reason that it was written for Habakkuk at this time and place was a promise. Um, it was an encouragement in the face of evil. And so first, we look for conviction in our own hearts, um, but then we look for comfort in his promises. Comfort in his promises. There will be justice. It's coming. I think all of us can look out into the world and it doesn't take very long to see the twisted, evil things in the world around us. Um, corrupt nations and governments, China, North Korea, human trafficking, modern-day slavery, racism, abortion, child abuse, and the list goes on and on and on. It's heartbreaking. It's disgusting. Each one of those should just break our hearts and leave us crying out, God, when will justice come? When will you make this right? But it's not just out there either, is it? It's in our own lives. To one degree or another, all of us, some of us to horrible degree, have been taken advantage of. I've had evil things committed against us. You've been walked over. You've been betrayed. You've been lied to. You've been hurt by those who were closest to you. 
used as a tool in, in someone else's success or for someone else's sick pleasure, and it's wicked and it's evil. You've been treated as a stepping stone, as disposable building material in somebody else's pursuit, and it hurts, and it cuts deep. And there's a fine line there that I want to encourage you to think carefully about and and walk carefully down. Um, Don't fall into bitterness. Don't fall into your own wrath and hatred against that person. But, But hear these words as God's promise of justice. There will be justice. Their sin, that sin that was perpetrated against you, will not be overlooked. It will not go undealt with. As Romans 9, or 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Um, man, kids sure help us get a clear perspective of God sometimes, don't they? I think how many times I see one child sin against another, it's obvious, I'm coming in, I'm about to deal with it, and then the one who's been sinned against, who I was going in to protect, has to take that shot back, spits at his brother, or takes that final closing word, and, and now, now I've got to deal with both of you. Now I have to deal with your sin as well as his sin, and it just it begins to unravel. Romans says, now don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to the Lord. Your father is on his way. He's opening the door, coming into the Just wait. Wait for him. Now, uh, Romans 13 does talk about the government as God's tool for wrath against injustice and how that's right and good and we ought to expect that of our government and encourage that in our government. And and there is some justice there, but as is happening in Habakkuk's day, it's the government that had become corrupt. It's the government that was supposed to be God's tool for justice that now is wicked. And even the best government we know never gets to full justice, never fully makes things right. And so these promises of Habakkuk are looking far beyond worldly justice. Um, They're pointing toward the end of time. They're pointing toward God's final justice. We'll, We'll feather that out a little bit in a few minutes. But it's judgment in eternity. And as we begin to understand that and really grasp what that means, truly understand the wrath of God against sin. And if they, they don't repent, their sin will remain on them and they will pay the penalty for their sin in hell for eternity. There's a place that is not personal bitterness, that is not vindictive, that is not, not anger in my soul, but that finds comfort in the truth that God will bring justice. That person will be rightly punished that the unjust will be treated with justice. And we ought to feel the rightness of that. We ought to feel that this is good. It should bring us a sense of peace. Um, It restores dignity to those who have been shamed. It restores a sense of humanity to those who have been treated as less than human. This, This will be cleared. It will be dealt with. And you may even begin to feel the weight of that word, woe. And trusting God's complete justice to come, feeling even a sense of pity, a sense of empathy. That person who sinned against me so wickedly, oh, now they are going to suffer for that. And praying even that they might turn to Christ and that that wrath that they deserve might be put on Christ. 
But that's the fate of the wicked. And we find a sense of comfort there, knowing that it will all be brought to justice. And so we wait. We wait patiently and humbly and obediently. We wait in faith, trusting in the Lord. But that, of course, is, is only half the story. In fact, it's less than half the story. Don't worry, it's not less than half the sermon. Um, there is still here not only the fate of the wicked, but there's a future of worship. There is a great and glorious future beyond this, this mess and mud of, of sin and injustice. Um, there is a future of worship, and that shows up in these two just key verses, one right in the center, and the, the Hebrew authors love to do this. It builds to that center piece right in the middle, um, and then at the end, this, this closing hammer drop statement um, these two phrases bursting with hope um, that those who, those who live unjustly, um, who abuse others and, and, and seek after their own gain, they live in, in sin and, and entice others to join them. They trust in the works of their own hands. Um, they're seeking their own glory. They're seeking to raise themselves up to rule over in this place of honor. And they may succeed at that for a time. But in the end, Verse 14 has this glorious promise. Um, This is the worship of the Lord, um, the worship of the Lord. There will come a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a fantastic verse. Let's, Let's just unpack that a little bit. The glory of the Lord is his goodness on display. It's his goodness on display. It's his manifest presence, the presence of God in a way that can be felt, can be experienced, can be seen or touched. The glory of the Lord came in the the pillar of cloud in the wilderness. The glory of the Lord came in the the tabernacle in the holy of holies. It came as as fire that filled the temple of Solomon. And, And it's power and majesty and honor of God's goodness on display Uh, But notice there's this weird uh, turn of phrase here. Uh, It's not just the glory of the Lord filling the earth. It's the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. What's that about? Well, knowledge is such a, that that word, such a significant word throughout the Old Testament. Um, It's not just knowledge about. It's just not that they know the glory of the Lord. Um, It's personal. It's relational. It's intimate. Um, It is a love for his glory that will fill the earth, a love for his glory. Um, Help us get the picture here. Um, Think back through the Old Testament as you're reading along. Um, You'll often see this little phrase, uh, and he knew his wife. And and it's usually followed by, and she conceived and bore a child. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. That's what it's talking about. He knew his wife. It is the climactic expression of intimacy and love and oneness. The Bible makes this connection often. They will know the glory of the Lord. They will have love and intimacy and joy in the glory of the Lord. The way that the waters cover the sea. Um, Kids, Um, To what percentage does the water cover the sea? Any guesses? Yeah, 100%. The waters cover the sea. That's what makes it the sea. Now, the... the Mediterranean Sea would be the sea that Israel was most familiar with. That was this massive body of water um, right beside them. 
the average depth, average depth of the Mediterranean Sea is 1,500 meters, a kilometer and a half. That's huge. At its deepest, it plummets down to 5,267 meters, over five kilometers deep. Like, running five kilometers takes a long time, takes me a really long time right now. Um, But going down that far, it's unbelievable. And so imagine that, five kilometers deep, in a world of small handmade fishing boats and handmade ropes and anchors. And so they would let down their anchor to try to find the depth. And, and in English, kind of older English, we would measure that in what? Fathoms. And it is literally unfathomable. You won't get to the bottom of it. That's how the water covers the sea. That's the picture that the Lord is drawing out here. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, deeper than you can imagine, fuller and richer That's what we're looking forward to. And that knowledge of the glory of the Lord, that love of who he is, um, that changes the way we live. That produces justice. I ran into this great quote from Spurgeon this week that was just so apt for our time. Um, Spurgeon said, People who are very happy, especially those who are happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give or to take offense. Uh, isn't that just beautifully countercultural today? If I'm happy in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, I'm not going to give offense. I'm not going to take offense. That's, it's just, that's so small in the light of what, who the Lord is. And so um, from the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord proceeds a world um, lived in, in, in congruence with God's goodness and His holiness. A world that loves him, that lives in conformity to his perfect glory. That's the worship of the Lord. That's what we're moving toward one day. And and it points us forward uh, to the last point, our wonderful hope. Our wonderful hope. Verse 20 is, is kind of the anchor of this verse, this last kind of mic drop moment. But the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. There's nothing left to say. Notice this is looking future. Um, Let it be so. Um, The Lord is calling for that day to come. Um, Similar to when he said, let there be light. He now says, let the world stand in silence. God will rule supreme. Absolutely supreme. God will rule. Now, the Lord would destroy Babylon um, physically, Literally, as a nation, we, we read that in the book of Daniel, um, as they were in the middle, ironically, of one of their drunken, debaucherous parties, um, the Persians came in under Cyrus and wiped them out. And, uh, and, and they inflicted, just as God uh, predicted they would, the, the Persians inflicted so many of the exact same things that they did to Lebanon and to Israel were done then to Babylon. Um, they received justice to some degree in this life. But Babylon continues to show up in Scripture long after it was destroyed. Um, First Peter, um, the letter of First Peter, uh, Peter uses the title Babylon to speak of the Romans. That was the modern day wicked empire that was ruling over them and taking advantage of them. Uh, but most notably, it shows up consistently uh, in the book of Revelation. 
And, uh, and I just want to take us a kind of a walk through um, verses 17, or chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation and see how Habakkuk then will be fulfilled in the last day. Um, so turn over to, to chapter 17, if you would, for a minute. Revelation, we'll spend a bit of time there. Um, before we get to 17, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, speaks of God pouring out his wrath. And, uh, and, and there's just this little snippet. I think it's a connection with Habakkuk. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. God is about to do it. He's about to bring down his wrath. He is about to put the world quiet before him. Um, but we get to chapter 17, and, uh, and it speaks of Babylon, not as a literal nation, um, but represented as a prostitute, a seducer, um, seducing the world, and the residents of the earth have become drunk with her. Um, she has intoxicated them with her lies. And, and it's the wisdom of, and, and the ways of this world. It's love for self. It's the way of injustice. It's, it's pride and, and wealth and luxury and idolatry. And, and then Revelation 17, um, look at verses 5 and 6. And, and tell me you don't start to see some of these connections play out. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So um, Babylon, this worldly system, the people of the world intoxicated with her uh, have attacked the church, the saints. And now down into chapter 18, I want to read a decent chunk here, verses 1 to 10. Listen to this. After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. It's, it's this deserted wasteland. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. She's passed her poison and they've drunk it. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich. The power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. This is the voice of the Lord calling his people. Come out of Babylon. Don't be enticed by this, this worldly ways, by this unjust living, by, by luxury and comfort and, and your own glory. Come out of her, lest you partake in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come, on, come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. 
They that stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Babylon will be destroyed. Just as God promised against the first literal Babylon, they will get what they deserve. They will be wiped out. So God promises at the end of time, at the end of all things, Babylon will be destroyed. And then chapter 19 begins, After this I heard what seemed like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That's it. That's the message of Revelation. Jesus wins. The Lord wins. Justice will be done. Babylon, the, the, the climax and symbol of all injustice and evil, the wickedness of this world, uh, destroyed, wiped out, gone. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus, our King, will rule supreme with justice, with equity, with peace and joy into eternity. That's our wonderful hope. That's where this is all going to. We, we live by faith, waiting patiently in the Lord, trusting Him, enduring even the worst trials, not taking vengeance on the sin against us, knowing the fate of the wicked and that glorious future of worship. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, You know the wickedness of this world more than we do. Lord, You know our hearts you know that we look out at the just grotesque evil that happens in this world every day. And it just, it's ugly, God. And Lord, you know those here um, who feel that burning hot iron in their heart right now of the pain that was done to them. Father, would you comfort us Would you help us to trust in your justice? Help us to trust in your righteousness to come. Lord, that you would guard us from bitterness, that you would guard us from vengeance, but that we might find uh, comfort in our hope in you. And Lord, lift our eyes. Oh, as we see evil running rampant, even in our own country, Lord, we so look forward to that glorious day of your return. A glorious day when Jesus will um, establish his kingdom clearly and evidently, when we will see your glory, um, when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Oh God, we long for that day, hasten that day. And God, give give us patience now. Help us to wait in faith. Help us to live by faith as we trust in you as we hope in you, Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.